You're listening to Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are so glad that you are here to hear this thing that we call a podcast. We have a very unique guest uh, this week. Has a lot of different, wore a lot of different hats in the business, and we're going to try to get to all of them. Uh, you might know him more from ECW as the manager of Taz and Sabu and Rob Van Dam. Uh, I remember him more fondly as the longtime referee in the last seven, eight years of championship wrestling from Florida. Kind of want to talk both about the territorial days and how things went in those days, which was a whole another different world than we live in today, as far as kayfabe went, as far as cell phones and social media, and, and just a whole another different world, a whole another different business. But also we want to talk about him working with... Uh, El Gigante, Giant Gonzalez uh, in WCW and WWE and how he made the transition to ECW. And the guy could talk. I'm just going to warn you right now. The guy could talk. We appreciate him on. And uh, without further ado on City Ringside, please welcome my guest this week, Bill Alfonso, better known as Fonzie from ECW. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this week on City Ringside, a great storyteller, a fantastic referee, a manager extraordinaire, and uh, somebody who's seen and done so much in this business. I'm so happy to have him not only on my podcast this week, but I don't talk about this all that much, uh, but I do want to bring up that um, we're going to be doing a championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest. It's the third one uh, that uh, I've uh, co-promoted. And it's going to be here in uh, Tampa area, uh, June 2nd. Uh, and we're going to have uh, Bob Roop and Steve Kern and uh, Dory Funk Jr. will be there. Uh, Buddy Colt will be doing a rare appearance. Uh, and um, and my next guest will be there as well. It's June 2nd. You can go to eventbrite.com and type in CWF Fan Fest if you want to see more about it. Uh, Bill Alfonso, welcome to City Ringside. Great to have you, sir. Dave Penzer, it is my pleasure and an honor to be on a podcast with you, my brother. Oh, that's that 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 means a lot. Thank you. So, I want to want to delve right into your uh, to your career. Um, I know that you uh, have some sort of either family or friend friendly relationship with uh, David Sierra, better known as uh, the Cuban assassin, Fidel Sierra, Top Gun in Portland. Uh, uh, and I and and I believe, if I remember correctly, you uh, sort of were riding around some of the, the territories he was in, trying to break in as a referee with with him, and then ended up back in Tampa uh, and got your break there. Is that all correct? That is correct. I was the luckiest guy on the planet when my father came home from a luncheon with the sports editor for the Tampa Bay Times. Sometime in the, I guess I was about. 14, 13, 14 years old, and they used to write, um, a guy named Frank Klein, he used to write the results of who won and lost in Tampa in the, in the newspaper, and because uh, Eddie Graham used to put a little article, a little, uh, um, a little deal in who's going to wrestle next week in, in Tampa, 
and then they would write the results Tuesday night. So my dad had lunch with them, and they used to comp Frank Klein two free tickets, and my father came home and said, hey, Billy, I have a couple of tickets my friend gave me for, for wrestling, and I didn't know anything about wrestling until my dad came home that night with the two free comp tickets. So I wasn't so interested in it because I didn't know anything about how the hotbed of Tampa Bay produced so many superstars. I didn't know anything about wrestling. And I was six miles, I live about six miles away from Fort Home Wrestling Armory, but never knew anything about it growing up. So I didn't want to go. This was like on a Friday. My dad came home with the two passes. So curiosity got me. So Tuesday night came. I said, well, let me go and just see what this is about. I don't know nothing about so, it. I've never so watched it. No Gordon Soley. Not to interrupt, not to interrupt, but your dad was so proud that he scored these tickets and you're like, thanks, but no thanks, huh? Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't not appreciative, but I, I said, dad, I, I don't know anything about this. And, and actually, he didn't know that much about it either. But you know, he had uh, lunch with his buddy, Frank Klein, who wrote, uh, you know, for the sports section in Tampa Bay Times. And uh, so I went. So I ended up going that night, Tuesday night. I said, oh, by the time the main event was over, I said, oh, my God, I love this. That night, this, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It doesn't take long to hook you, does it? I uh... It hooked me that night. There was the blonde hair. There was Eddie Ram and Bobby Shane and his ballet and, and uh, the assassins and Oliver Humperdinck and all these characters just got me. I said, wow. So I used to beg my dad, please have lunch with Frank Klein so I can get the ticket. <laughs> so for, for about the next year or two, my dad would always get these two comp tickets and, you know, and, and plus I could afford a ticket. The tickets were like three bucks for downstairs, you know? So, but anyway, uh, I started going and, and, and fell in love with it. And, uh, David Canal, who's the Cuban assassin, David Patterson, uh, he was one of my best friends growing up. He's a couple of years older than me. And so him and I used to go to the armory every Tuesday night. We didn't miss a Tuesday for nothing. I mean, we love this stuff. And then, um, after, you know, a couple of years, uh, standing on the wall, uh, there was Hulk Hogan about, uh, 50 feet away from me. He's tall, skinny kid, uh, just like me watching their matches, you know? So we were both watching the matches about the same time. Uh, but, but I didn't know him, but you know, but I've seen him and now I know, know Hulk Hogan and we all know him. Uh, so as time went by, David Penzer, I start meeting some of the guys and find out where they go after the matches, which was the Imperial room. And, and I'm now I'm getting a little older. I'm 16, 17 years old. So I start meeting some of the wrestlers and start, uh, like going to get sandwiches for them when they used to tape on Wednesday at TV and, and these, you know, just uh, became friends with a couple of guys like King Curtis and Rocky Johnson and a few of the guys. And then um, uh, back then, it it uh, there was outlaw shows. They weren't indie shows. So uh, Dave and I were having like a little match at a baseball park. We were just goofing around, you know. And some guy drove by and spotted us and stopped the car and was watching us. And we were doing some pretty cool stuff 
cool enough for the guy to watch us, and he approached us and said, hey, we run a show in Lacoutsi, Florida, uh, right up the road. He said, why don't you guys come down and do a little tryout? So Dave did, and I win, and, and, and uh, we got into that for a little bit. What was then, his uh, What was his name at that uh, in, on the uh, Outlaws? Because I remember Ted Webb pointed it out. Because Ted used to uh, Thun, uh, Thunderbolt Jackson. Thunderbolt Jackson. Yes, uh, when when Ted Webb put uh, uh, put those uh, those clippings up. Ted Webb, for those who don't know, is a very very famous um, uh, radio broadcaster here in this market uh, for over fifty years. He actually just retired, and uh, he's very wrestling friendly. He always has been, and um, but but yeah, so uh, he put something on Facebook and Thunderbolt Jackson was that was it, and he said that was uh, who knew who, who that was, and nobody knew, and he said, oh yeah, that was uh, the Cuban assassin Fidel Sierra, and I was like, wow, that's just part of that story I never heard before. So you were involved with that too. That must have been interesting. Now, did you get any heat with the office uh, for doing those shows? Yes, or? yes. In fact, in fact, um, it was. Uh you know, they were very protective of their, of their territories. And you know how uh, wrestling was back then, Dave? It was really protective, really kayfabe. I mean, you couldn't ride with uh, uh, baby faces and heels together. There was You'd get fired for something like that. So it was really protected. And uh, so one night we were doing a show in Lacucci. It was like every Saturday night or every Friday night. They ran it was a little fire station. They drew maybe 150 people, 200 people sometimes. It was Danny, the fighting fire chief, and uh, Donnie York. He's a local wrestler here. His father was wrestling there and a couple other young guys, and they were just putting on a little event. And so for some reason, um, Eddie Graham caught wind of it, and he sent one of his shooters one of his tough guys, Olympic caliber Bob Roop, he walked right into the dressing room, drove up, parked his car, walked right into the dressing room and says, hey, I challenge any one of you motherfuckers to get in the ring with me right now. Excuse my language. Uh, no, that's and of okay. course, we were all freak, freak, freaked out because there's Bob Roop. We all know, you know, Bob Roop, Olympic caliber. Nobody's going to touch this guy. So uh, he, he left, but, you know, we continued on, but Eddie was aware of what we were doing, but we were no threat to him, of course. Sure. We were just running, you know, but uh, uh, so we didn't get heat for it because we weren't picked out. Like, oh, there's Fonzie and there's Ava Canal. Uh, uh, so the office really didn't know that we were involved in it. They just knew that there was a group of guys running this, these outlaw shows. Kind of, kind of uh, ironic, kind of off topic, but kind of ironic uh, if you, if you uh, go full circle that Bob Rupa later in his career had a reputation for uh, being in uh, a big part of outlaw promotions against uh, the NWA. So kind of interesting yeah, that, that's, that that's who they sent down. Yeah, it is ironic. And it's ironic that um, I end up being his assistant booker for Florida Championship Wrestling in the 80s. And just to debunk so Wikipedia, just to, just to point out fake news, I asked you this off the air because I saw it on 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 the computer, and I said this can't possibly be true because I've known both you and and Bob Rupus was the guy instrumental in getting me in the business. So I'm you sure you ask me if we're related. Yes, right? uh, yeah. It says that he's your uh, stepbrother. So I don't, Dave Pender. I do not how no. I have no clue on how that got started uh, because we were just friends. We worked together for a few years, and 
of course, when you know somebody in the business, you know them for life. You know, like yeah. I know you, like I met you in 91 and uh, WCW. So now we're friends and brothers for life. But uh, no relation. I don't have no clue on how that got started. And they also got me born in uh, like Delaware or something. But they got my age right, my date of birth. But uh, the relation of Bob Roop and him being my brother is absolutely false. But I wouldn't mind having him for a brother. He was uh, treating me great. Yeah. So just so just for the record that uh, we've debunked that that as fake news, and uh, and so hopefully you will nobody have to ask you that again. So um, so how'd you finally get your your break? I've, I heard the story a little bit. I was watching some highlights of the uh, the Florida Legends lunch that I know you're going to be inducted in in May, and uh, uh, way overdue for that. Uh, but uh, I heard part of the story about a. Uh, catching a break with the office, but why don't you tell the story for those who didn't get a chance? Yeah, well, well, we became, um, Dave and I became good friends with Rocky Johnson and King Curtis. And they saw something in Dave because he was a natural, he was talented and he could work and he was big. And I was a little skinny kid, you know, 150 pounds. So Dave, um, uh, Rocky and, and King Curtis, got Dave a booking in Dallas, Texas. Gary Hart was a booker for the Von Erics. Remember now there's four territories in Texas at that time. The Funks, um, Tilly Blanchard's dad, uh, Paul Bosch in Houston, and um, Von Von Erics. So there's four different territories and four different TVs. So so Dave says to me, hey, they got me booked and uh, you're going to go with me, uh, Fonzie, because we're best friends and we've been in this trying to get in our foot in the door for years and here's our chance. Uh, I'm going to tell him you're my little brother because we'll have a better chance if we're related and I'm going to tell him you're a referee, a hell of a referee, which I was, wasn't a hell of a referee. I was just, you know, uh, watching wrestling growing up right. and then did a little bit in La Coochie, Florida at the outlaw places, but still we went to Texas. I packed my bags. I was, uh, this was 78 and we, uh, drove to Texas and Dave goes in a sportatorium and has a meeting with Gary Hart. Says, well, my little brother's going to be here for the duration of the time I'm here. And if you can never use him, he's a referee. And Gary Hart said, well, I'll keep that in mind, but we got David Manning. We got Bronco Lubitz. We got this guy. We got that guy. But if something comes up, we'll definitely keep him in mind. So sure. I'd be, I would go to every show in in Texas with that he was booked. We were booked seven nights a week, and um, and then I used to interchange talent. Like the Funks would have guys come up from Von Erich's territory, uh, go up to Amarillo and do TV because uh, different TVs. He would say, "Send uh, send me three guys uh, so I can get my guys over." So like job guys, like you used to bring the guys up to WCW back in the sure. day, Dave. Sure. So we went, Dave says, okay, Fonzie, you go with me. And we're going to tell him you're my little brother and stuff. It's like we've been going. And um, so for some reason, something happened to one of the referees. And uh, they said, okay, we're going to use you uh, on the show. So I refereed that night. Uh, or for their TV and stuff. So a couple months go by later, and they call up the Von Erics again and say, "Hey, 
Stanton, uh, Pat, David Patterson, um, uh, this other guy, and Sen Patterson's little brother because we need him as a referee. And it, so I was ecstatic. I said, oh, my God, great. So it was a house show. There was a TV and then a house show. So this is my first night actually getting paid, and I did almost all the matches. And the main event was the Sheik, Sabu's uncle, the original Sheik, against Terry Funk and a chain match. Well, at least and you I don't said, have to do wow. very. At least you don't have to do very much as a referee in that match, other than probably call a DQ at some point. Yeah, so so Humperdinck comes out with the Sheik as his manager because the Sheik just came in. You know, he came in like Abdullah the Butcher or Andre the Giant just came in for the week. You know what I mean? Sure, special attraction. Uh, yeah, special attraction. So Humperdinck was in Amarillo with the Funks uh, managing whoever the Hollywood Blondes or whoever he had. And so he comes out with the Sheik, and he comes out with this big uh, python, bull constrictor, whatever it was. And I, I'm not afraid of snakes. I like snakes. So he comes in, and the Sheik's doing his stuff, and uh, Upper Dink's chasing me with say He says, sell the snake, kids, sell the snake. So I didn't really know how to sell. I, I, it didn't cross my mind to sell the snake, but once he told me, then I sold the snake. So... But anyway, I made, uh, I think, $90. That was a pretty big payday back then. Sure. That was my first professional payday. Uh, and it was uh, pretty cool because later on, I ended up managing the Sheik's nephew, Sabu. We'll talk about that later in ECW. And uh, Sabu instantly loved me because I showed him where the Sheik stabbed me with a pencil on a work for the XC did rip my shirt off and stab me with a pencil. I still got the lead mark in my uh, left arm to prove it. So I said, hey, Sabu, my first time I refereed and got paid for it was with your uncle and Terry Funk in the chain match, and he stabbed me. Here's a pencil mark, and Sabu loved it. So That's like one of those things, like if you could survive that, like you're like, you know, you're, you're, you're a lifer in the business, but, you know, most, most people who... Uh, who do their first uh, referee and official gig and have to do the main event with Terry Funk and the Sheik probably would be spooked for life. So I probably showed him that uh, that uh, although you might have been inexperienced, probably showed him that you were you were right where you belonged. I was very inexperienced, but they didn't know that. Sure. But watching it growing up, David Penzer played a big role because I mimicked what I've seen and. Terry, I mean, Dory Funk and Terry loved me after that. And uh, to this day, uh, Dory Funk would say, hey, one of your favorite referees, name one of your favorite referees, he would say Fonzie because I helped him here when he was Booker here in Florida. And I refereed so many of his matches and uh, worked with him for years and years. So um, that's the kind of story how, how I broke into business. But this, so so after... Texas, David Penzer, you know, you stay about six months or nine months, you know, the life of a wrestler. Right. But back then, the offices would interchange their talent. So uh, Gary Hart says, okay, uh, Dave Patterson. Um, uh, um, Gary Hart gave Dave that name, David Patterson. I don't know why, but he just said, hey, you're David Patterson. He said, okay. Uh, because they had Al Madrill there, a Hispanic Mexican wrestler, and he was one of their big stars, but Dave could speak Spanish, but they didn't take advantage of it. They didn't think of it. But anyway, 
So uh, Gary Hart says, okay, you're going to finish it up in, uh, say, uh, August 2nd. And uh, we got you booked in Mid-Atlantic for George Scott and uh, and uh, Crockett's. And David said, okay, Fonzie, you're going to go with me over there. Maybe you can get a job referee in there full time. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I was in Texas six months. I refereed maybe three or four times. But I did referee for um, Joe Blanchard. I did referee for the Von Erichs a couple of times. I did referee for the Funks a couple of times. So I had a little experience, but uh, more um, I was learning by watching and being in the dress room, getting coached for Harley Race or doing whatever I had to do to be accepted in the dressing room. So when we went to uh, Mid-Atlantic, uh, George Scott was the booker, and of course, Dave said, okay, this is my little brother. He's here. And um, uh, they said, well, you start uh, the, in three days, but your little brother, we don't have no room because we have Tommy Young, we have this guy, we have that guy. Hebner. Uh, but, but the Hebner's but, if uh, Stu Schwartz, but if something happens, we'd uh, love to use him. So if he's going to be here with you, we, you know, and the spot comes up, we'll definitely use him. If we start running 2009 or whatever, we use him. So I was there for about six months again, and I worked maybe three or four times and by accident. You know, some guy, something happened, uh, maybe Stu got sick or Tommy, Tommy Young, something happened, and they used me three or four times. So finally I said, Dave, I, I got to go back to Florida. You know, and I, I'm so thankful that you brought me for the year on the road and you paid my food and you did this and that in my living quarters. And it was a great experience, but I just can't keep riding around and going to the matches for the rest of my life. I got to go home and do something. So I came home. So all the guys knew that I was leaving and I was real well liked in the dressing room. And Paul Jones came up to me. You know who Paul Jones is? He was a Florida championship wrestling superstar back yeah. in the 70s. Little uh, short guy, but a hell of a worker. He threw the belt off a of Gandy Bridge. Yeah, man, the was, uh, and then stuff. he was Mr. Florida at one point and a big star, yes. uh, big name in uh, yes. the Charlotte territory and later uh, became yes. a, a manager, like a lower level manager for Dusty. Exactly. Well, not not, exactly. not, not managing Dusty, but managing like the warlord and the barbarian and and uh, exactly. people like that. He had his little run after he wrestled for years and years. They gave him a little spot. So anyway, Dave Fenzer, he says, hey, Fonzie, I hear that you're going to Florida. It's a shame that, you know, you couldn't get a full-time gig here. But here's what I want you to do. Uh, Jerry Briscoe is a really good friend of mine. And also Dusty is a good friend of mine. Dusty's a booker. And Jerry Briscoe's the assistant booker. I want you to go to the office and introduce yourself and tell them I sent you. And if there was any that you just moved back to Florida, you told me exactly what to say. You just moved back to Florida and that you're a referee and this and that. And um, so good luck. And, uh, you know, you got my blessing. And, and maybe they can use you. Maybe they can't. I said, okay, thank you so much, Paul Jones. And I got a good farewell from all the guys including George Scott and the Crockett said, Hey, I'm sorry we couldn't use you, but you know, uh, good luck, whatever you do. So I left and I came home. So I was hesitant, real hesitant about going to the Florida office on 106 North Albany, Dave Pinter, because 
I was a little intimidated because here's where I grew up at. Here's where I went to the matches for years and years as a mark. And here's where I got my start. Here's It was just intimidating. So anyway, I worked up my nerve and I said, I'm going to just go. So I got dressed up, nice suit, haircut, shaved. It was looking pretty good. I was young as hell. So I go to 106 North Albany where they tape TV, the Sportatorium. I go at 8 o'clock. I'm so nervous. I go at 8 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Of course, there's nobody there at 8 o'clock in the morning because wrestlers don't get up till 12 o'clock, you know? Yeah. But uh, so uh, anyway, I went to uh, Christmas Donuts. You know what's that? And I had a little couple of donuts and kept driving back and forth. Finally, I seen a couple of cars pull up. So I go in the office. I walk in, and there's a guy. His name was Charlie Lay. He had been a big superstar from the 50s and 60s. He was a big-time wrestler, but he was old, and he worked the front desk. Right. He said, yeah, kid, what's for you? I said, well, um, Paul Jones wanted me to come in and introduce myself, and and uh, I'm a referee, and I just came from Mid-Atlantic, and I moved back to Florida. And uh, just to let you guys know, I'm available if you guys ever need a referee. He told me to try to get a meeting with Jerry Briscoe. He said, well, hold on, kid. Let me uh, call Jerry. So Jerry was upstairs. He says, Jerry Briscoe, there's a kid down here named Bill Alfonso. Paul Jones sent him. He wants to have a meeting with you. That's how the guy talked. So he says, uh, go right up. So Jerry wasn't so busy. He was by himself. Dusty wasn't there yet. So I go up, I go up to the steps. If you've ever been to the sportatorium, you go up the steps and to the second story, and there's the booker's office. Jerry was sitting behind a big desk. There's all kind of pictures and papers and all kind of stuff, trophies and all kind of shit. So I walk in, and there's Jerry Briscoe. I introduced myself and told him the story. I said, well, Paul Jones told me to come in and let you guys know this and that. And he said, well, what kind of experience do you have? I said, well... I worked for Joe Blanchard in uh, San Antonio. I worked for the Von Erics in Dallas. I worked for the Punks in Amarillo. I worked for uh, the Crockett's in Mid-Atlantic. There you go. What a resume. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You sure got the credentials, brother. But uh, uh, unfortunately, Bill Alfonso, we have, we're full right now, but maybe, maybe this summer we might be running two shows We'll give you a call. Make sure you leave your number with Charlie Lay. This was a Monday, Monday morning. Give your number with Charlie Lay, and and uh, it was nice meeting you. And uh, yeah, Paul, we started talking about Paul Jones a little bit, and then you know the meeting lasted about sixteen, seventeen minutes, and I was gone and went downstairs and left my number. Hey, Bill. But so hey, this was a Monday Bill, night. Bill, before you continue, I, I got to say. We interview a lot of a lot of the guys, uh, you know, guys that, from the territory days, guys like, uh, you know, uh, like Glacier and Ray Lloyd and uh, Sonny Ono and uh, uh, with Simon Diamond. I've just interviewed a ton of different people since we started this podcast. And the one common thread in almost all of their stories and people that listen on a regular basis will kind of chuckle is that at one point in their life to get a break, they either flat out lied or they exaggerated the hell out of whatever they were they were asked. So and is- that's exactly <laughs> well, Dave. I did exaggerate a little bit, but I told the God sure. truth because I did work for Blanchard. 
one time. I did work for the Funks twice. I did work for the Von Erics twice. I did work in Mid-Atlantic sure. two or three times in the in the year that I was gone from Tampa. I worked maybe a total of 10 times, but I was in a dressing room every night, absorbing, sponging everything in. Knowledge is power. You know, that's that. the most, that's the and, most, uh, you know, I was going to say, uh, that, 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 that year, probably more than the, the 10 times you refereed the, the, the better knowledge, the, the, the best knowledge that you probably got exactly was just being in the dressing room right. and getting to know how, how to act around the guys and, 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 You're and, 100% and right. Humble, you got to be humble, you got to be knowledgeable, you got to have all these factors, you got to have to have the it factor. If you don't have it, there's not a chance in hell. You got to have the personality, you got to know how to get along with different levels of guys, you got to know how to treat uh, main events to the, to the preliminary guys, you got to know how to treat the fans, everything. So, all that combination, you're 100% right. So, I left my with Charlie. This was a Monday, and they ran West Palm Beach every Monday, Tampa Tuesday, Miami Wednesday, Jacksonville Thursday. Friday was a spot show. Saturday was a spot show, like uh, Bayfront Center or Lakeland Civic Center or somewhere. And then Sunday was Orlando, and it kept wrote repeating itself day after day after day. It was the same towns all the time. So how I got my phone call from Charlie Lay was that Monday was a sellout crowd in West Palm Beach at their civic center there. And their referee, their secondary referee, I think Scrappy McGallion, remember him? Yeah. The blonde-headed kid. Scrappy was their main referee and Stu Swartz. And the, but anyway, the, the referee that was like the secondary referee was driving to West Palm Beach. Uh, he passed Yeehaw Junction and there's nothing out that way. So he has a flat tire, and he's got the three main events in the car with him. The oh, main event who's going to fight Dusty, the second main event who's going to fight this other guy, and the third. So the top three matches he's got in the car, he's got a flat tire, he's got no spare tire. So they missed the show. Ouch. Dusty was so freaking hot, he fired him instantly. So I get a call Tuesday morning about 10, 11 o'clock. He said, uh, Bill Alfonso, Charlie Lay. Thank God I was home. And he says, uh, Dusty wants to know if you can uh, come down to the armory and uh, referee tonight for a skid. That's exactly pretty much the word what he said. I said, yes, sir. What time would you like me there? He says, uh, the boys get there at 7. Don't be late. And he hangs up the phone, and I can't believe I'm going to go to the armory where I grew up watching all these guys. And I really hadn't met Dusty on the road because, you know, he was uh, doing other that year. I met so many guys. Of course, Harley Race was back then. I met so many guys, but I didn't meet Dusty or Jerry Briscoe. So I go, I'm, I'm freaking nervous. I'm happy. I'm excited. What do I do? Let me just be myself. So I had a pair of wrestling boots as my referee shoes. They were size 12. I wore a 10 and a half. They were a little big. I had black pants and a referee shirt that was a little big on me 
and wasn't the most beautiful referee shirt you've ever seen. So I show up. I'm the first one there besides Dusty. I walk to, I go to the armory. I walk in, and there's Dusty Rhodes sitting there. He's the first one there. Uh, I'm the second. So I walk in. I said, uh, Bill Alfonso, he says, uh, Dusty Rhodes, he says, are you our new referee for tonight? Uh, I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, sit over there, and I'll get, I'll get back with you in, in a few minutes. So I'm sitting there. I'm starting to unpack my bag and get dressed, and here comes the assassins, Jody Hamilton, who you know real well because you work for him. Right. In uh, WCW, you were affiliated with him through booking the other guys and all Absolutely. that. So Jody was an assassin. And in come all these guys, um, uh, Bobby, uh, Daggers, and all these guys start walking in, and they don't know who I am, and they're, I think they're talking about me, but they're really not. I'm introducing, they all introduce themselves, so Dusty gets with me and gives me a couple of finishes, and I do well. I do very well that night refereeing. And then at the end of the night, he says, hey, can uh, you make Miami tomorrow? I said, yes, sir, I can make Miami, no problem. So I made Miami. He's been at, uh, at the end of the night. But Miami says, can you make uh, Jacksonville tomorrow? I said, yes, sir. So I made Jacksonville and the next night. Can you make the next night? So it went all over to Sunday. And then um, after the match Sunday, Briscoe comes up and says, congratulations, kid. you got a full-time job. They like you. You're a hell of a referee. And you're in. So that started my career, and that was 1980. And you had about a seven-year run as a referee here, correct, in Florida? I stayed here until the company folded. Dusty wanted me to go with him to Channel 17, but I couldn't leave because my wife was really, really sick with her kidneys. She had kidney failure, and she, um, so I couldn't leave, you know couldn't just pick up and leave because she was on Dallas and she ended up passing away um, at the age of 22. Uh, And I had a two-year-old child and so I couldn't leave. So um, after she passed away and um, I got over my grief and and, uh, life goes on, then I get a phone call from Hiro Matsuda and he says, uh, Fonzie, uh, Bill Alfonso, I want you to go to Japan and referee this match between Fujinami and Ric Flair at the Tokyo Dome uh, because Matsuda loved me and he knew how qualified I was and I would take these great bumps. And I was um, so educated in wrestling at that time because I had learned from the Funks and the Eddie Grahams and Steve Kearns and the Briscoes and all these famous, intelligent, and big superstars I learned from, uh, finishes and timing and all kind of stuff. So he said, you're my guy. I want to do this match because it's an important match. It's the first time um, WCW and Japanese are going to put a joint show together. And I know you can do this match. It's going to be a big deal you take a bomb we're going to switch the title to the japanese guy that we're going to take it back because you threw him over the top rope and so i went and um, and um i was excited to go because i had been out of wrestling for about a year because my wife had passed away and 
I was just, you know, getting over uh, all that. So I said, what can I do special for this match that I can be recognized because Dusty, Jim Crockett, all these guys, the Japanese office, big sellout, 65,000 people. What can I do a little bit to look uh, out of the ordinary and be noticed and not noticed at the same time? So I went and found a Japanese flag and uh, like a patch and an American flag and I had it sewn on. I went and bought a beautiful designer, long sleeve, blue shirt, beautiful bow tie, beautiful new pants, beautiful black shoes, had my hair cut, shaved, beautiful. Uh, so I'm sitting in the dressing room in Tokyo and I'm sitting next to the, in the same room as Dusty and the Japanese office and everything. So once I let everybody get dressed, because I'm doing the main event, so I don't have to get dressed at 7 o'clock. So I finally get dressed, and when I put that shirt on and the bow tie, all the Japanese uh, owners, Fujinami and all the, ooh, you know, they all, ah, ooh, they love the fucking American flag and Japanese flag because I'm doing the American-Japanese main event, you right. know? So I did very good. I took my bump, and the match got over. And so after the matches, it's uh, normal for everybody to go out to dinner together. The whole company, Japanese company and the American company, we all go to this big restaurant. They had open special for us. And there was, you know, 60 to 70 people there, promoters, ring guys, wrestlers, Dusty, Ric Flair, Fujinami, everybody. So Dusty's the head of Channel 17, the Superstation, WCW. And um, so uh, we have dinner and they sing and there's music and all that. So it's time to go back to the Keo Plaza and we got to wait in line for taxis. So a taxi was hard to get a cab. You can't just wave a cab down. You got to stand in a certain place spot and the cab picks you up and takes you away so uh, three wrestlers would jump in the car and go three wrestlers would jump in the car and go three guys so it got down the last three guys standing everybody's gone all 50 guys are gone the last three guys are me Rick Flair and Dusty Rhodes Rick and Dusty jump in the back seat of the cab and I'm in the front seat so we're going back to the Keo Plaza and Dusty says Hey, Fonzie, baby, it's going to happen for you. It's going to happen for you, baby. Uh, I'm going to have Jody Hamilton call you, and uh, I'm going to bring you up, baby. It's going to happen for you. That's all he said. I said, thank you so much, Dusty. And as soon as we got home, about four or five days later, Jody Hamilton calls me and says, uh, Hey, Fonzie, when can you start, Dusty? Once you're up here right away. I said, you just tell me what day and I'll be up. So um, gave me a date and I went up and I worked there for a few years. Before we, before, we, before, we get, before we go up to uh, WCW, I wanted to ask you if that's all right, just a little bit more about, oh, yeah, uh, about Florida. So you mentioned the travel schedule. Monday, uh, everybody lived in Tampa, I'm assuming, for the most part. So Monday, yes. Tampa, yes. West Palm Beach and back. And Tuesday... Uh, yeah, that was a four hundred round trip. Yeah, and Tuesday was e- is easy. You know, you just go to the Armory, 
But then uh, you part. I'm yeah. assuming you've been a big party afterwards. But then you got to be at the sportatorium for TV at what ten o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, by and, ten by ten o'clock we would tape two and, hours of TV. But it took four or five hours to tape the two hours. And course. then uh, either then we had to either drive, to drive or or if you were lucky enough to get on a private plane or something to Miami and back. Right. And then Jacksonville, which was the hall. And then I guess the spot shows and uh, the. Uh, I could guess be the, anywhere in the country. Could be Ocala. Could be St. Augustine. Could be uh, somewhere around Orlando. Uh, could be uh, you know Homestead. Could be Key West High School. Could be anywhere in the state. But usually it was on Friday. It was like a high school or a small venue. Uh, could be uh, Bar- Robar's Arena, Sarasota. And then Saturday was a, a kind of a big night, but it was more of a spot show night. But that was our big night. Like if we ran um, the Bayfront Center, you know, they'd build right. it up for uh, weeks and weeks and weeks before they ran the Bayfront Center or the Lakeland Civic Center. Those were our two big shows uh, that we ran, you know, several times a year. But it was usually a spot show on Saturday, too. Uh, you know, a high school gym or a Rumble Arena or so, you know, so on. But And then Sunday, Orlando. So do you... Do you ever get used to that? Do you ever get used to that? Because that is so repetitive. You know, we've all traveled. Everybody in this business has traveled a long way. And, you know, 300 miles in a car is is, is, you get used to that. Oh, my God. The first years, Dave, the first few, three or four years, I loved it. And I was happy. And I was making six and seven hundred dollars a week was big money back then. Sure. Um, But it never got exhausted. Of course, it was tiring and repetitive and. And then finally, after five or six years, I remember one time I snapped. We were. Uh, I doesn't it, doesn't everybody Jr. at some point? Yes, of course. In Japan, especially if you go to Japan for four weeks, those guys snap in the first two weeks, brother. They snap easy. But uh, after years and years, I was so good at my job, and you know, I knew what to do. And what spot shows Dusty would want to like an hour and. 55 minutes exactly no more no less and you know house show was two hours and 20 minutes he had it down and thus he had a system don't be late uh show up at seven o'clock have you shit ready so anyway we did a spot show so we did my we did um uh palm beach monday tampa tuesday miami wednesday uh thursday uh, jacksonville so Friday we were at a spot show and we were way in the frick past Tallahassee at a place called um Bluntstown, I think it was Bluntstown. It was past Tallahassee about fifty miles. So it was a two hundred and fifty mile. So we just busted our ass for three days straight, four days straight, and then so we're doing a spot show way in the hell away, and Dory Funk was the booker. And he says, well, Fonzie, uh, this is the first time and last time we ever ran that town. It was a good crowd, of course. And uh, uh, Dory Funk says, well, Fonzie, come back in a few minutes. I'll give you a finish. And he was wrestling Mike Graham or whoever. And I went back and said, okay, what's the finish? He said, well, I don't have one yet. Well, I'll come back in a few minutes. He says, I'll come back in a few minutes. Okay, we're going to go 60-minute Broadway. <laughs> I said, Dory, are you fucking crazy? I'm this is exactly, I said, are you fucking crazy? This is a spot show. We're 250 miles from home. 
We're never going to be back in this building. There's no way we're doing a fucking 60 minute Broadway <laughs> in this fucking thing. I'm sassing the booker. He could fire me instantly. You know what I mean? But yeah. I snapped it. There's no reason, no rhyme, no reason to go 60 minutes. We got a long drive. We got this mat. It's a spancho. Give him a finish. Give him a DQ. There's something to make him happy. So we end up uh, doing something. And, uh, you know, that was one of the times I snapped. But. Very rarely did I snap. I was uh, getting educated and loving it and living my dream in Florida. Sure. I know how that is. But it was repetitive. It was 1,500 miles a week, easy. And very rarely, Dave Penzer, did I get a chance to fly to Miami. Who'd very you, rarely. Once who? in a blue moon, I would jump in a plane if there was a spot, somebody at the last minute. Usually, it would be on the way home. I would drive with the guys, Reggie Parks. Uh, uh, Scott McGee, uh, somebody, uh, and then um, since I was refereeing the main events, and these guys were in the first half of the match, they had to wait for me until the matches were over. You know, they could have left at, at intermission on a long, long drive. Dusty allowed you to leave at intermission if you could, you know, first take matches. So uh, once in a while. There was a spot on the airplane for me. Dustin said, hey, uh, Jack Briscoe didn't show up or something happened. There's a little spot on the plane. Tell the guys to go. You can fly back with us. I got a story about that, too, I'll tell you. But uh, uh, So I very rarely got the flu, but but I drove my ass off. Anybody, any, carpooled, any, anybody carpooled. in particular that you uh, that you enjoyed traveling with? Um. We got kind of clicky. Um, I got real close with Kevin Sullivan, uh, Angelo Mosca, Oliver Humperdinck. Um, those guys are really uh, because they were in the main event, and I at that by then this was the mid '80s, or you know when Kevin was doing his devil gimmick and working with Dusty, we were selling out everywhere we went. Uh, I was already one of the top referees I'm not saying this they say I was one of the top referees in the country they admired me because I knew how to carry uh, at that time some of the buildings the heels would get dressed on one side and the baby faces in the other so I had to get carry all the finishes over and after a while I learned uh, Dusty would sit down when I get there at 7 o'clock Dusty would talk to me for 10 minutes give me all the finishes some of the high spots, how to go into the finish and the rhyme and the reason. And then I'd carry it over to the other side, to the heel side. I said, okay. And everybody lined up and I'd give them the finishes. I got so good at it. I, my memory was so sharp. I would remember finishes backwards. I remember one time that um, a guy named Dell, um, he was related to, let's see, he had his, he was with Kevin Sullivan. And he had half of his head shaved. His first name was Dale. He had a brother, Dale Lewis. Right, right. Somebody's brother. He was actually. Uh, so. He was actually. Uh, he was actually uh, uh, not Uncle Elmer or Hillbilly Jim, but one yeah, of the. Yeah, yes. Yeah, something the, like that. One of the one for he had a brief run in WWE as uh, as as one of their cousins, cousin Luke. That's so, who it was. It was cousin Luke. Before he got that he was here as one of kevin's uh henchmen and they had his head shaved half shaved and stuff so he was in the main event in orlando with dusty and the finish was uh that 
Uh, Dusty makes his big comeback. He takes the bump out of the ring. He crawls, the Dale Lewis crawls under the ring, and he's hiding from Dusty. And Dusty starts looking for him. He don't find him. So Dusty starts, he says, Dale, when I start stomping my feet and getting the people to pop, you come out and I hit you and we're going to the finish. One, two, three. So Dusty's waiting. He starts stomping. Boom. Trying to get the people going. Come on. And the people get get go get you with me, Dave? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Dell didn't come out. And so the finish got uh, uh screwed up. And they had to Dusty had to change the finish and Dusty after the matches, I went back to the dressing room and Dusty said he was so pissed off because he was precision. I mean, Dusty was like a machine. He says, Fonzie, either I'm going to fire you or <laughs> Dell Lewis. Which one is it going to be? How come the guy didn't come out when I started, when gave him his cue for the finish? I said, Dusty, I gave it to him. I could give it to you backwards, sir. And I gave it to him backwards. And he said, okay, go over there and fire Dell Lewis. <laughs> and he made me go over there and fire the guy. He said, hey, Dusty said you're fired. You know, I did it in a polite way. And Dusty, get, you know, gave him a chance, uh, another chance. It gave him a couple more weeks and then let him go. But he was so pissed off. Dusty wanted his shit precision, not halfway, not change, not uh, close. He wanted exactly because he spent his whole life designing these matches. It was hard to do, to, you know, every Monday night, every Tuesday night, repetitive, you know. It's hard to come up with these finishes. That's why how I got so good. My mind got trained, and it was like a sponge, and, you know, because I worked for – there. Were, I went to so many bookers, Wild McDaniel, The Funks, Michael Hayes, Bob Rube, Dusty, Jack Briscoe, Jerry Briscoe, all these uh, big guys. You know, so I learned so much from these guys. I could carry 20 finishes over with all high spots uh, at one time. You know, so well, one night uh, Dusty was fighting Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Graham was a special referee in Orlando. And I go over and I give out all the finishes and I get to Kevin and he's all excited. He's working with Dusty. Not that he's working with Dusty, but he's excited because Eddie's come out of retirement to referee this big match. It was a big blow-off finish. And uh, I says, uh, Kevin, do you want it diplomatically or do you want me to just give it to you? He said, just give it to me, the finish. I says, the owner will nail you with a big punch and the booker will cover you one, two, three. And then he <laughs> laughed and he always tells me that story. Funny, I'll never forget. He told me the booker. The owner's going to nail me, and the booker's going to cover me. Oh, he, he always reminds me of that story. But I got a tons of stories about Florida Championship Wrestling. Now, I, I have a question that I, I've asked a couple other people, and I don't know that there's a set okay. answer. I, I don't know that there's a set answer. But if, if Nobody's going to answer the same. Everybody's yeah. got a different answer. But and if I'm you, pretty much 99.9% .9 truthful on all yeah. my stuff. If you, if, you, uh, if, if, if you look back at the... Um, at the results, you know, that, that, that CWF archives, uh, fan, uh, 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 Facebook page that, that, uh, I, we used to promote the fan fest that you're going to be at, uh, on June 2nd in Lutz. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to that, David. Oh, it means a lot. No, we're looking I'm forward to having very, you. Looking uh, looking very, very proud to come and, uh, represent you, you, you know, something for you that you're putting on. Looking forward to having you. And the fans are too. And, uh, uh, 
So you, you see, he puts in like, you know, a lot of the results and you see a lot of, not a lot of times, but every once in a while you see like all the matches are changed up. And when you look and see, it's obvious that like a car full of heels, like Bugsy and Assassin, like, like four of the heels just didn't make it. The car broke down or for whatever reason. And, and, and they had to change all the, the matches. Uh, Tell me about a night like that, because there were no cell phones. So how did you find out? Or I'm assuming at some points, if somebody's stuck on on the side of the road, you just have to kind of change on the fly if they don't. If they're not, yeah. In the well, building. you got to remember. You got to remember, Dave, on the, all the advertisement, on all the tickets, on all the posters, cards subject to change. Sure, sure, sure. I get and it. And of course, and of course, we've had uh, mishaps where somebody like. You know, Barry uh, Windham, we were doing TV, and Kevin Sullivan, uh, they were working an angle, and Kevin Sullivan hit Barry so hard with a chair, he gave him a concussion. And we had to rush him to the hospital. He was unconscious. And, of course, he couldn't make Miami Tuesday night, so we had to emphasize and, you know, put Mike Rotundo in there as, uh, against uh, whoever. And uh, all kind of little incidents, but we had answers for everything. It didn't happen on the a weekly basis. That was very rare yeah. that something happened, but it did happen uh, many times that, you know, a plane crashed or something happened or something got sick or the last minute something happened. Yeah. But, uh, they, they, but Dusty had all his ball players. I'm talking like we're a baseball team. All his ball players could be from uh, first and second match up to a main event. I remember Scott McGee, uh, he was in the uh, opening preliminary matches. Then he went to the middle of the card. Then uh, all of a sudden, they built him up, and he's working with Ric Flair on TV, and he beats Ric Flair on TV in a non-title match. I remember now, that. So we could, at any given time, Dusty had his talent so hot that he could use uh, opening mid-card level guy who was actually a superstar in his own right in a main event and subject to change. So Dusty had that figured out. A lot of guys didn't like, I remember Michael Hayes. Uh, he was the booker. I don't know how he got the book back then. They were the free birds, him and, and, uh, the big kid who died, uh, Barry Gordy Dale, and buddy. Yeah. Yeah. The buddy, uh, the buddy, so they were all, we were all partying and they were drinking Jack Daniels and all kind of shit. But, you know, he had a good mind. He was good and they were over. Uh, so he was the booker. We were in, at the Sunrise Musical Theater for Lauderdale and, and uh, uh, Michael Hayes was the booker. He said, man, I can't think of a match. We got it. We've been advertising this match. A loser has to take the, uh, he's wrestling somebody with a hood on. If he beats them, he's got to take the hood off. And he said, man, I'm racking my brain off, Fonzie. I said, that's the easiest finish. I said, Let me give you some. I gave him 10 finishes. And he said, Fonzie, you're a fucking genius. Thank you so much. <laughs> so he would come up to me multiple times a week and ask me for finishes. So Bob Root begged me to stay and be his assistant booker because I was ready to go to Mid-Atlantic. And, uh, but uh, Bob Root said, hey, Fonzie, what would it take for you to stay here and be my assistant booker? And I said, that right there, assistant booker to Florida Championship President, okay, I'll stay for a little bit. So I stayed. I was so well-liked and so educated in the business and, and such a demand that the guys would beg. Flair said, I'm only coming to Fonzie referees my match. I was just good. 
not because I was good, it's because I was trained and absorbed all this stuff. You know, I'm blowing my own horn here, Dave. No, no, but any anybody would anybody would back you up. I could back you up on that. I mean, uh, as somebody who was a fan of of championship wrestling for Florida at the time, but also as 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 hung out with so many of gotten to know so many of the guys that you're mentioning. Uh, you know, you, you were extremely well respected, uh, and still are, uh, as a re- especially as a referee here in the state of Florida. Uh, and then I, you, I was so lucky, David, to get to get that spot and be trained. I was at the right place at the right time, and then I was so lucky to get educated by all these fantastic guys. Even Eddie Graham himself, who didn't put guys over too much, loved me because I was an outdoorsman. I was a fisherman. I knew Florida. I knew the business. He would talk highly of me. This Bondi, you know, I would make say the right things at the right time to make Eddie smile, and you know what I mean. And he knew how hard I worked, and I, you know, it was a hell of a referee. And then at one time that uh, Dory Funk was Booker David Penzer for a while, and he would always have me like the baby face would be making his comeback, and he'd be throwing these big punches. Uh, Dory Funk, and he'd have the referee hook the arm, and then Junior would sucker punch the baby face. And then who would get the heat was the referee, sure. because I would hook his arm. You know, he's hitting him seven, eight, nine. I'd hook his arm like on the seventh punch or something, and then fucking Junior would give him the knee or the, or the you know, the upper forearm thing to the uh, and uh, stop him. And I had so much heat at one time. When they announced my name and the referee for this match, Phil Alfonso, and boo, boo, I'd have more heat than some of the heels. So Eddie Graham said, man, Fonzie's got so much heat. What are we going to do? You know, he said, uh, then Dusty said, well, let's see, he lists interchange. Let's bring Tommy Young down for six months and send Fonzie up to Mid-Atlantic for six months. So they changed. So they, so the heat would get off of uh, Tommy Young up there and he would get up for me, you know, fresh face, fresh referee. Right. I was the main event. So I went right up to the main event and while McDaniel was the booker. So it was time for me to leave. And, uh, and, um, Tommy Young would call me after four or five months and said, Fonzie, please let's change back. Let's change <laughs> back. I said, well, it's not up to me. It's, it's up to you. Cause Tommy had his house and, you know, and I was living in a hotel up there like we did in Atlanta same scenario and I say well I'm ready to go but you uh the office has got to tell us how we have we don't have the power to say hey I'm going back to Florida you coming up here the bookers got to tell us we don't have that kind of power we're just workers so finally it was time for uh, I was kind of getting burned out of being up there I wanted to come home too and Tommy Young was calling uh Jim Crockett every freaking week begging to come back up and uh, finally, they set the date, say August 1st or whatever. So um, Wahoo McDaniel says, Fonzie, I know you're leaving August 1st, and I don't want you to leave because you're my fucking left-hand man or my right-hand man. And I was helping him as I was helping everybody else. I was like an assistant booker, but I referee right. and very good at my job. So he begged me, Wahoo said, what would it take for you to stay here in Mid-Atlantic? He said, name it. I'll give you anything. I'll let you handpick the towns because we 
we were running two, three towns a night, you know, the A team, the B team. You can handpick your towns. I'll give you a raise. I'll do this. I'll do that. He begged me, literally begged me to stay. But, you know, the uh, office already said no, August 1st was the day. I said, it's out of my hands. Plus, I want to go home. I'm a little homesick. I've been up here six months, you know. And um, Eddie wants me back and all this and that. So I ended up coming back and Tommy went back up there. But that's how well liked. I mean, well, that's how good of a job I was doing for the offices that I was almost being begged to stay. That's a good feeling. Hey, I got I to gotta bring yeah, this. Yeah, very good feeling. Yeah. Very good feeling, yeah. Dave. I got especially in a cutthroat business like the wrestling business. You know you're doing something right. right. You, know, you know you're doing something right if people are begging you to stay instead of sending you on your way. Cause there's a lot of guys that get sent on their way. Uh, it's hard. It's very hard to have a long-term longevity in this business. You know that David. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, I got to ask you about that. I know I, about this next one. Cause I was there as a fan. I, I, I know what you're going to ask. Yeah, me. I, know. I know what you're going to ask me about Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. I, and, and I'm sure you've been asked about this a million times. Uh, and, and that's a big question. I get Yeah. Well, you know, because the world wasn't smart back then like they are now. You know, now we'd, we'd all in the audience know exactly what was going on, but it, we didn't know what was going on. And uh, and, and I was there in the audience, and uh, probably when the match was announced and you saw it on the booking sheet, you never thought that, that, that 20-something years later, 30 years later, you'd be asked about this match probably every interview that you do. But... um. They did. It. They have done documentaries on this. Yeah, show. yeah. It was a uh, for those the, of you who high spots wrestling. Yeah, just did a documentary specifically on this cage match. For those for about. those of you who 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 may not have a clue what I'm talking about, uh, there was a match in the War Memorial Auditorium. I want to say around eighty five, eighty six, right before Luger. Say you're right around there. Right before yep. Luger uh, went to the uh, went to uh, WCW. Uh, and, uh, he had, he had became a huge superstar yeah, and he had learned his craft, but he couldn't work. Yeah. He had learned his craft in Florida. Uh, you know, good looking guy, baby face learned how to work a little bit. And so he got called up to Crockett, but before he left, they booked him at least on this night in a steel cage against bruiser Brody. And, uh, as legend would have it, uh, at some point during the match, and you, this is on all you, this is easy to find. So if you've never seen this, if you're, um, if this is something that you've never seen or you haven't seen it in a while and, and you want to check it out, just uh, just Google Lex, Loser, Lex Luger Bruiser Brody. It's, it's very easy to see. Uh, at some point, Brody just stopped selling. Uh, and Luger, It wasn't at some point. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you my story. Continue with the narration well, so the fans get an idea yeah, what we're talking well, about. Well, I'll tell you what I saw. And, and then I'll give my yeah, opinion. Yeah, you were the ref- yeah, you were the referee. You were backstage before and after, so you know you're, there's nobody else uh, that could give an independent verification of what happened that was closer to it than you are. Uh, at some point, uh, Luger, uh, Brody stopped selling for Luger, and... Uh, very soon thereafter, maybe about two minutes after that, uh, Luger jumped out over the cage, walked back to the dressing room, and you were uh, you called for the bell. And I don't know if you disqualified him or if you counted him out, but um, nobody really quite knew what they were seeing because you didn't see that kind of stuff happen hardly ever. Yeah, uh, that was a rarity, Dave. So here's my opinion on, on that. 
So, and it was way before Luger went to WCW. I'd say it was uh, early in his career, maybe three, two or three years into his career. So Matsuda had trained Lex Luger and had high hopes for Lex Luger because he was relatively handsome guy, right? Wasn't sure. a bad looking. Actually, he was a good looking guy. Had nice hair, and he had the body. He had a beautiful body, perfect body for for wrestling. But uh, so he was the total after, package. He was the total package, and uh, they had high hopes. And Matsuda trained them and trained them and trained them, and uh, he trained them with Big the Bull Ed Gantner. Remember right. him? Right, sure. Uh, who, who, who? Uh, they trained him at the same time, but uh, so anyway, uh, Matsudo would kind of handpick Luger's opponents for the first year or two. You know what I mean? Giving them sure. these guys that could work, like Scott McGee or somebody, or a nice baby face like Jimmy Backlund, or somebody that can work their ass off, and then he, you know, worked them up to more main events with Barry Windham or Mike Rotundo and all these talented guys that could just lead them through a match. So literally he was getting hand-picked opponents because Lex Luger wasn't a natural, he was an athlete, but he wasn't a natural professional wrestler like uh, Barry Windham was. He didn't have that hit factor. He didn't have the knowledge. It took him a long time to get, you know, he can go through the motions and do the backdrops and do wrestling, but he didn't have that. It didn't uh, come natural. It didn't come naturally, and it never, and it, it never came. His whole career, his whole career through WCW and WWF, when he was the Lex Express, uh, um, the the guy that was so good looking, they brought the mirror out. What was his name? But anyway, um, the narcissist. The narcissist. But yeah, but he never got over but he got over to a certain point because the office pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and shoved him down the, the fans throat right. and they had to like him and he was well liked from the fans because he was so good looking they overlooked his non-working factor and I'm not saying that Lex Luger was a bad worker so I'm not saying he was no Barry Windham yeah. or he was no uh, Jake Roberts, so he was nothing. Uh, it just didn't. Cast, it didn't come. One to ten, he was a five. Yeah, it didn't come natural. You know? Didn't come natural. Didn't come natural. I had to work very hard. Thank God he had a good body, or else he would have been gone a long time ago. Yeah. So anyway, getting to that night after a couple of years of hand-picked opponents and ripping his T-shirt, he wore that white beater, white T-shirt, you know, with no sleeves, and ripped it off and everything. That was his gimmick, and it posed, and it was beautiful. He was all over up, got over that way. So we get to the building, and um, Luger's not thinking so much about the match. You know, he's just saying, oh, this is going to be another regular match. and uh, He's not putting too much thought into it. So it was kind of the bookings department's fault for that whole incident, in my opinion. So we get to the building. We're getting dressed. And you got to know Frank Goodis, Bruiser Brody, he was a novelty piece. He was like Abdullah the Butcher or Andre the Giant right. or somebody of the women or Fabulous Mother would come in for the week, do the loop, and then go to the next territory at that point of his career. Right. And big in Japan, huge, huge, huge in Japan. Absolutely. So 
And he was known for being a little hard and difficult to work for the the office. He wasn't like an office guy. He was he wasn't a yes man. Okay, I'm gonna come and put this guy over. Oh, he was kind of hard to do business with in a in a good way. Not, not I'm not saying he was an asshole, but he was tough. He wanted it not his way 100 percent, but he wanted it his way 90 percent. But the uh, bottom line was he would end up doing what the office wanted, but in his own factor, in his own mind, he would create the scenario. Just tell, give him the finish, and he'd do whatever he wanted to do, and usually it worked out, and he became successful, but he was difficult to work with. So we get to the building, and I'm the referee, and um, now it's time. Uh, everybody's got their finishes, but Lex and Brody. And Lex is real anxious to get the finish. He wants to talk sit down and talk to Brody for a half hour and go over the entire match, you know, lock up, push off, uh, arm drag, back drop, all that shit that we talk about. But um, Brody wasn't ready. And uh, so intermission comes and Luga still doesn't have the finish. He says, Ponzi, Ponzi, I don't have the finish. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I said, well, just wait for Brody. He'll talk to you. And now Brody catches um, Luger's fear or catches his drift. He says, wow, this kid has uh, only been in the business a couple of years. He's one of the big main event guys. He's a good-looking guy. He says, shut the fuck up and just wait and listen to me instead of being so anxious and want to go over the entire match and have it laid out specifically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, they go home. So Brody didn't, he, he felt, uh, Luger's vibe, you know, yeah. that he was so anxious. So now Brody's taking advantage of the situation, kind of antagonizing them, not on purpose, but in a business way, he is, he wants to come and tell me what to do. I'm going to lead the match. I'm going to do this. He's not saying this, but this is what I think Brody's thinking. You know what I mean? So um, finally, they finally talked just briefly. I mean, for two or three minutes. And Brody just says, just listen to me out there. And that's pretty much the whole conversation before the main event in the cage. And now fucking um, um, Lex is nervous because usually he would have his whole thing laid out, going to do the finish, put him up on the rack, finish, you know, the backbreaker type thing, put him up on the shoulders, the finish. He'd have it all before he went out there. This is the first time that he doesn't have an actual finish. This is the first time he's not educated on exactly what they're going to do. This is the first time he's putting this odd situations. This is the first time Hiro Matsuda's not in the dressing room telling him what to do. This is the first time Dusty's not there giving advice and telling him what to do. So, Luger goes out with a little panic. You can see it in his face. He's not so sure of himself. So, we go to the ring and they introduce the opening cage. Here comes Brody. Here comes Luger. We get the cage. They like the cage. And, uh, 
they uh, say Bruiser Brody against Lex Luger. They go through all that stuff, and they go to lock up, and they and and Brody kind of just avoids them a little bit. He's walking around. Finally, Brody attacks him and gives him those massive forearms to the back and stops him instantly and beats him up a little bit. And Luger tries to make a comeback, and he's no selling them because it's not. He's not listening to what Brody says, but Brody's not really saying nothing to him. He's just working him. He should have the common sense to just feel the match and go whatever Brody's doing to him. And then Brody's eventually going to say, okay, make the big comeback, do this, I'll bump, I'll do this, and do that. But it never came. And Luger was getting more panicked as minutes. The match only lasted minutes. I yeah. Mean, if it lasted 10 minutes. No, it didn't uh, last 10 minutes. No, I don't think so. I don't remember specifically the time, but didn't last long at all. And, and you can um, you can you can see and tell me correct me if I'm wrong, you could almost see uh Luger getting frustrated and you could almost see it sort of in a yes. perverse way entertaining Bruiser Brody that Luger was getting frustrated. He wanted to keep sort of yes. like sort of like teach him a lesson, you know. Not 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 in a yes. bad way, just like, you know, no. teach him a lesson so you next time you're in this right. experience you know, you'll know how to handle yourself, kid. Exactly, exactly. So my point is, it was a bad booking. There was no office there to help him out. It was just us, you know, just just the guys, the booker took the night off, whoever was booking that night. If it was Dusty or Dory Funk, whoever, they weren't there. The main event was Luger and Brody. That's the big main event. And the steel cage and all that, so... Uh, for some reason there was no booker and I got the finishes from the office or whatever. Uh, but there was nobody there to hold Luger's hand. So Luger finally got so panicked after, um, Brody wouldn't sell anything. Luger did to him nothing because it wasn't time. He just panicked and he worked himself such in a frenzy. He said, Fonzie, I don't know what to do. So I said, just, Keep working and listen. It's gonna be time is gonna come when you know what to do, and it, it never came. And fucking and Luger freaked out and crawled up the cage, went over the cage, went to the dressing room, grabbed his bag, never showered, got in his car and drove back to Tampa. Never stayed in the dressing room and waited for Brody to come back because he was scared of Brody because you know he thought Brody was mad at him. Brody wasn't mad at him. He was frustrated because the way the office had presented this match and didn't have the kid prepared for it, right. you know, it wasn't Luger's fault and it wasn't Brody's fault. It was just a miscommunication and it was just a bad call. And that's pretty much what happened. Luger panicked and left because he thought he was going to shoot on him or something. Brody was known for being rough house and, you know, being Japanese wrestlers, uh, snug and stiff and all that. And he was a little stiff, but not stiff enough where he's going to break your jaw. He would be stiff with those forms to the back or something and the, sure. and the knee, the, you know, the knee left and stuff. So uh, Luger just freaked out, panicked, and did the wrong thing and, and left. And now it's a historical, talked about one of the, you know, the top 50 talked about matches in the, wrestling history yeah just a little old building in fort lauderdale and uh that's still standing by the way and uh yeah and and did do you know if luger ever spoke to brody after that or, or i don't think he did because i think brody 
I think that was Brody's last night because Monday night was uh, Palm Beach, Tampa Tuesday, and uh, Miami or Fort Lauderdale Wednesday. So those are our three big towns. And then the next one was Jacksonville, which wasn't one of our big drawing houses. So Brody was only in for the three days or something. So they never communicated after that match, as far as I know. Now, one of the stories that I heard when, and you, you're, you're probably going to say this is wrong, and that's fine. That's why I'm asking you. You were there. One of the stories I heard was it was towards the end of uh, Luger finishing up in the territory and going to Crockett, and uh, they told Brody to do it as like a sort of a rib on Luger on his way out. You're, uh, so there's not nothing to that that you know of. Well, that might be, but I never heard that. I never was a part of that or never heard the rib part. Or, so that might have been from the upper chains of command that – you know, but I doubt that because Hero Matsuda had a lot of power and wouldn't probably wouldn't have that allowed, and 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 uh, Brody had a lot of respect for Matsuda, so I don't think it was premeditated at all. Well, that's a, that, that's I mean, my opinion. No, that's I not, I, my I I trust opinion. you. What what you said makes what make you know after being in the business kind of makes sense. Yeah, as long as I have it, it makes sense. It just a uh, uh, total total overreaction on Luger's part. And I think it just, you know, kind of amused Brody in a perverse kind of way. And he just kept doing what he was doing and Luger couldn't calm himself down. And so he just left. And that was that. And Brody was such a powerhouse. He didn't really give a fuck. You know what I mean? He was came in to make his money and it wasn't his fault that that the kid left, uh, crawled out of the cage and grabbed his bag and left. Then shower, jumped in the car with his uh, tights on and drove home. You know, you'd have to think if Brody, uh, you'd have to think if Brody was alive today, that if he saw Lex at a, at like a convention or a WrestleCon, he probably, they probably have a, a, a big laugh over it. But, uh, unfortunately, I would say probably, yeah, yeah. Unfortu- yep. unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, him, yeah. uh, that didn't, he didn't, uh, it didn't happen. And, uh, I don't need to get into that, but, uh, that's a whole nother, uh, episode of the podcast. But, uh, so, so back to WCW. So, um, you get the call from no, listen, Joe. I got a couple more quick stories about <laughs> uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, and then we'll jump to WCW. All right, buddy. How about, I appreciate it. Uh, where, okay, I'll give you one. I'll make it short. So we're driving. I think it's me, Steve Kerr, Barry Windham, and Mike Rotundo. And now the cell phones had just come out. This is in the late 80s, but the cell phones was the size of uh, two bread boxes. You know, right, the big right. battery, and, you know, it was huge. So... I think Barry might have had a cell phone back then. It wasn't a cell phone. It was a communication device or whatever the fuck yeah. it was. It was huge. So anyway, we're driving. We're going to, uh, we just did TV. And usually I wouldn't ride with these guys because that was their own clique. I would ride with the, you know, the mid guys, Scott McGee and other referees. Uh, rarely did I ride with uh, Barry and Mike Rotundo and Steve They were in their own clique. So we're driving down to Miami after long TV, 106 North Albany. So we're about we're about in the Everglades, past Immokalee. We're taking a shortcut to get to Alligator Alley. So we're on 31. And so we stop in the middle of the fucking Everglades. And everybody had guns. And these guys were making pretty good money. So they were buying toys, radar detectors, and uh, the big fucking communication device and uh, guns and cowboy boots and fucking $300 hats and all kind of gimmicks we had because we were making money. Right. So we all stopped 
and uh, everybody pulls out their fucking guns. I said, wow, I don't got a gun, but okay. <laughs> everybody starts shooting that shit, and Ben Stinker says, hey, Fonzie, I'm going to shoot that sign. I said, Steve, fucking Stevie Wonder can hit that sign. It's fucking the big sign. He said, no, I'm going to hit the pole that's holding the sign up, which was, you know, a two-inch diameter pole, you know. So I said, okay, that would be a good shot. So he aims, shoots the gun, bam, the fucking bullet hits the pole, ricochets, and hits Barry Windham in the leg. Bam, Barry goes down. Barry's cell phone rings as soon as he gets shot. Now we run over to Barry. Barry's on the fucking ground selling his fucking leg because he just got shot in the leg. But the the bullet had slowed down from the ricochet so much it uh, it penetrated his leg. But you could see the bullet, you know, kind of half in his leg and half out of his leg. And the phone rings. It's Dusty. Dusty's worried about because Barry's going to wrestle Harley Race for the world title sell out in Miami Beach Convention Center. Hey, where are you guys at? And I said, Barry just got shot. He said, what? Oh my God, what happened? Where well, I tell him what happened. He says, well, fucking dig the bullet out, tape him up and get his ass here. <laughs> so we dug the bullet out. They fucking band-aided him up as good as they could. And he wrestled Harley Race 60 minute Broadway that night in Miami Beach Convention Center. No way. Yeah. Then he went to the hospital. Was he out any time, or was he just a couple nope. of days? No, they fucking, they, uh, you know, he was sore. He got shot by a nine millimeter yeah. or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, black and blue and a big hole in his fucking leg and his thigh. But, you know, he got through it, and he might have took a couple of days off after, you know, he went 60 minutes Harley race. Probably, I just don't remember exactly, yeah. but I remember the incident. The show must so go on. Kind of Unbelievable. A, yeah, that was kind of a backstage story that nobody knows about. But I have told that story a few times and uh, to different people, and it's a pretty cool story. I got one more about Roddy Piper and a gun. There you so go. We're driving to Miami Convention Center again, and Roddy Piper, this is his first time in the territory, and he's off of Channel 17, the Superstation. So... He's only in for Monday night, West Palm, Tampa, Tuesday, and Miami Wednesday, and then he's off. So he's like a, you know, he's like an Abdullah the Butcher, Andre the Giant, he's a specialty item. Sure. So he comes in with his kilt and all that, and he's over because he's a big star on the Superstation. It wasn't uh, uh, TBS yet. It was uh, Channel 17, the Superstation back then. So um, we're driving down alligator alley and now piper's canadian he's never seen the alligator so we're driving and we've seen all these alligators there's a canal that's running parallel with the road we're on the highway so we're driving and fucking piper's going nuts oh my god there's an alligator oh my god there's another one there's another one we'll spawn 50 60 alligators on this path we're taking but they're on the other side of the canal about 25 yards, the canal is not real wide, but it's, you know, about as wide as a house, so it makes it a little bit wider. And he said, uh, it's Frank Goodish in the car. Where's um, your buddy? No, it's Frank Goodish, Kevin Sullivan, Bill Alfonso, and Roddy Piper. There's four of us in the car. And Piper says, man, 
I wish I had a fucking gun and Frank Goodis. I mean, uh, Frank Dusick. I was going to say. I meant to say, not Frank Goodis, but Frank Dusick. He was for a famous uh, family, the Dusick right. family. Right. Uh, yeah. So it was Frank, Frank Dusick. So uh, Frank says, I got a gun in my bag. So he says, pull over. Whoever's driving, Fonzie or Kevin's driving. So we pull over and he wants to shoot an alligator. So I said, well, it's against the law, but go ahead. There's nobody around this for miles around fucking uh, uh, Alligator Alley. So uh, Frank pulls out this old-looking 38 snub nose that's good for short distances, but you can't shoot an alligator way in the fucking across the canal being a possible shot. So Piper wants to try anyway. So he gets a gun. He takes aim. And he fires, and by luck, he hits the alligator. <laughs> oh, my God, what a shot. So he hits the alligator. He's all excited. The alligator starts going into convulsion. He rolls over, and he rolls into the water, and he's dead. The alligator's dead, we think. So Piper says, I want to get him. I want to get up the alligator and make some boots. So Kevin Sullivan says, okay, what I'll do is I'll go down about 50 feet and get in the water a little bit, distract the other alligators while you swim across the canal and get the dead alligator. So Piper starts taking his clothes off. He's down to his underwear. So he's in his underwear. Now he gets about halfway across the canal, and the alligator's just working. He comes back <laughs> to life. And he's, I swear to God, it was like a cartoon. Uh, so the alligator starts swimming, exactly towards Piper and Piper looked like a cartoon that Piper was so scared. He was swimming so fast back to the bank and he made it back to the bank. He said, Oh my God. And the alligator went underwater and left. And as soon as Piper got dressed, the fucking game commission, highway patrol, whoever it was pulls up and says, Hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just going to Miami. And they recognized Barry and all these guys, Kevin Sullivan, whoever was with us. And uh, they didn't know we just was shot an alligator, so that was another story. Short now, and sweet, but now know. I know Piper was. I was a big Piper fan back in the day, and I know that he Me was. Too. Me too. I know too. that he was only in the territory a couple of times. Was that the, uh, this will blow your mind if I get it right? Was that the night that they uh, they put the title on uh, the Midnight Rider, but then they they couldn't because uh, remember they that big show in Miami, the title versus the mask, and the Midnight Rider won. But because uh, uh, Bob Geigel had to see who was under the mask, and if it was Dusty, he'd be suspended. They couldn't take it off, so they gave the title back to Flair. And I know Piper was on that show. He wrestled uh, Chick Donovan under a hood. Was that the night? Chick Donovan, wow. He used to wear a blue suit to appear yeah. with a blue tuxedo, Chick Donovan. Yeah. Um, you know what? You might be 100% right. <laughs> you might be because it was a big night. Uh, because we had Piper and the world champ and, you know, it was a big super sellout night. So I think, uh, you're a hundred percent right on that. Yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly, Dusty, but, Dusty had been suspended for a year. So he came back under the hood as the midnight rider. The deal was, the deal was if he, if, if he, they, they proved that it was, uh, uh, Dusty under the hood that he'd be suspended for life. So all the heels would come in for a while and, and try to, unmask him to prove that it was dusty so he would be to take him out of the business and the yeah. blow off to that whole deal 
was Flair coming in to defend the title against the Midnight Rider. Bob Geigel was the special referee. He was the president of the NWA at the time. And he sure was. The Midnight Rider won the belt. And when we left, the, you guys left and went alligator hunting. But when the fans left, they thought that, 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 that Dusty Rose, the Midnight Rider, was the new world champion. We thought we saw a title change, which now is not a big deal. But back in the day, to see a world title change was like, you know, uh, you know, that most, was most, a big deal back yeah, in the day. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, hey, you know, so we turned on the t- we turned on the TV the next week to, you know, see. And that's when they said, you know, that that uh, the president needed to see if it was a mass wrestler who it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 that, you know, basically he had to uh, the Midnight Rider had to give the title back because he refused to unmask and. And but I'll never forget that was uh, the the main draw. But uh, but I went mostly to see Piper because he, like you said, he was hot off of that Channel Seventeen. Uh, he had just he was right in the middle of turning babyface, and he had that unique, uh, uh, you know, way of yes. talking. Way and of a talk- hell of a worker, yes. yeah. Yeah, I ended up. Uh, I ended up uh, his uh, tour manager. We spent forty five days in a a tour bus uh, for his book tour, crisscrossing the country. Uh, so I ended up working for, with Roddy and uh, and got to know. You must him. had a great time. Well, he was a hell of a guy. I love Piper. It depends what Roddy you got. There was a uh, yes. There was there was two yes. Roddies. One Roddy was the nicest, kindest guy in the world, and the other Roddy was all yes. was all business. And 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 you know, look, I was his tour manager. I wasn't there to be his buddy. So if he wasn't he wasn't happy with uh with how one of the the book signings went, then that Roddy wasn't too much fun to be around. But um. You know, hey, you gotta, you gotta. You, he was paying me a lot of money to to do an important job, so no hard feelings. Overall, overall, he was a generous guy, awesome guy. I've seen him, uh, awesome guy, and and I did see some of his uh, worth ethics come out when it was proper time. Like if he didn't like something, you know, and made it right. I remember he did a promo. We were mid Atlantic, and he was doing a promo, and he said, "You got that right during his promo." And people, the phones lit up calling TBS or the superstation and said, he said, you got damn right. And, and Piper, in a, and he had to have a big meeting with the whole council and the bookers and the owner and Channel 17 and all that. And they, they, he said, no, I never would say you got damn right, you know, because it's a Bible Belt sure. you know, uh, audience. So they, uh, he stuck to his guns, and they finally played the tape back and said, "You got that right, you know." And so, but uh, he was uh, really particular, and 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 the, some of the stuff like the book tour, like you did with him, that was pretty cool. I didn't know that you spent forty five days with him. Yeah, yeah. Tour was Billy Ray Cyrus's tour bus. It was, uh, it was me and him, and uh, his son was uh, uh, Colt. Uh, was uh, just a little kid, about eight nine years old, and. Uh, and and the bus drivers and uh and yeah it was a, it was a blast uh wow and i never Great got story. i never got a picture with me and him never got a picture with no me no way and, never got a picture with me you and dusty 45 45 yeah days you know you, and i would have had videos yeah, and all kind of you know you don't want to be a you don't want to be a mark you know and you think there's always yeah. the next you think there's always the next time until there isn't the next time so uh so god yep, bless god bless right. roddy uh i want to jump to uh I'm just going to go ahead and jump to ECW. You you had a run in WCW, you had a run in WWE. Uh, you went to ECW and uh, became more of a, a like you said earlier, manager for Sabu and 
and Rob Van Dam. Can I tell you? Can I tell you the transition? How I got to ECW? That was my next question, buddy. And how? And how, and how I got to WWF? So we're in WCW, and I'm the Giant Gonzalez personal assistant. They gave me an extra twenty grand a year, so referees were making uh, I'd say about a hundred grand a year refereeing for uh, Channel Seventeen, the Superstation, TBS, and and so they got a new guy in. His name was Dick Hurd or Richard Hurd. He was a like a big CEO of Jim, Pizza Jim Hurd Pizza, Pizza Hut. Hut. Yeah. Yeah, Jim so he really didn't know a lot about wrestling, and he wanted to uh, uh, cut millions of dollars off the budget because the previous administration was spending Ted Turner's money like it was water. I mean, paying guys astronomical money. In fact, my first check I got when I went to WCW was so big for me, uh, you know, it, it wasn't astronomical, but it was so big to me. I went to Dusty. I Dusty. I think they paid me wrong because here's my check. I took it to him. I said, they paid me too much money. He said, Fonzie, he started laughing. He said, Fonzie, that's just the beginning, brother. So anyway, Jim Hurd came in after Dusty left and Pockets and all those and wanted to trim the budget down. So Jay Gonzalez was uh, being paid his first year to say, uh, these are just odd numbers, not exactly. Say 250 for the first year, 350 for the next year, and 450 for his third year, three-year contract. So Jim Hurd came in and wanted everybody to take a pay cut. And Diane Gonzalez wasn't very happy with uh So he didn't agree to it. He didn't disagree, but he said, Fonzie was, you know, I don't want to take a pay cut. This is grueling on my body. I'm traveling all over the world. Me and you. He didn't like anybody but me and him in the car. So uh, they gave me a Cadillac, an extra 20 grand a year on top of my referee money to be his personal assistant. I remember that. And they didn't have to because I fell in love with He fell in love with me. It was like when they put me and him together, it was like the, the, the story in the Bible where the guy takes the thorn out of the lion and the lion fell in love with the mouse, you know? Yeah. So me and Diane Gonzalez were pals and buddies and we did so much and did movies and and appearances and sat in uh, Ted Turner's press uh, box where at a Braves game and they panned over during the Braves game and said, "Look, even a giant comes out to see the Atlanta Braves." That's when they were hot in the nineties, winning the World Series and all that. Right. Uh, so we had so many special appearances and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, Gonzalez says to me, he says, "Fonzie, what should I do? Should?" Should I go to Japan? I can wrestle in Japan to make more money than, you know, they want me to take a pay cut. I can go to Japan probably and make big money. Or I can go back to Argentina or go back to play European basketball. and I'll be happy. I'm not taking a pay cut. He said, do you know anybody in WWF? I said, I sure do. I know J.J. Dillon. He's assistant booker to Vince McMahon. He's Vince's right-hand man. And I work under J.J., under Dusty. Uh, was the book and JJ was his assistant and I was J- uh, JJ's right hand man. I was, you know, so I said, yeah, I can call JJ up and ask him, you know, and tell him. So he said, okay, at that time, the giant had a, a spur in his heel and had to have an operation to take the spur out of his heel. So we were at my parents' house on Lake Juanita in Odessa here in Tampa. Uh, Gordon Soli lived about 
uh, six blocks down on Soli Road. Jack and Jerry Briscoe lived about a mile away from me, and I lived through my parents' house on Lake Juanita. So I took the giant to recuperate um, while he had an operation, and we had like 10 days off uh, so he could recoup from the operation. So during those 10 days, that's when he found out about the pay cut. He wanted me to help him make a decision for his next move. Should he stay with WCW and take the pay cut, or should he move on and do something else? What are my options, Fonzie? I said, well, you know, you're playing basketball in Japan or maybe WWF. He says, WWF? I said, yeah, let me call J.J. Dillon. So I haven't talked to J.J. in years because he's been up in New York, and I've been in WCW with Dusty. And uh, then Jim Hurd came, and everything went haywire. So I called J.J. up. And I got a secretary and said, hey, this is uh, Bill Alfonso. I'm trying to uh, get a hold of J.J. Dillon. And she says, hold on, Priscilla, whatever her name was. She said, hold on, Fonzie. So I got on hold, and J.J. answered the phone. Hey, Fonzie, how you doing? Oh, my God, I haven't seen you in those years. I watch you on PBS all the time. You look great. How's the family? How's your little girl? And we're bullshit. He says, okay, what, what, what's uh what a what's a why did you call me, Fonzie? What's the you know what's the deal? So I explained to him just what I told you: take a pay cut, go to Japan, uh, go play basketball, or go home back to Argentina, or call you and Vince and see if you guys are interested in a package deal because the guy has to have a personal assistant. Plus, I'm one of the best referees on the planet, JJ. You know that, and he started laughing. He said, of course you are, Fonzie, because he knew that I could carry 20 finishes over. He knew my history of, you know, Florida wrestling and WCW and Japan and all that stuff. He said, well, let me run it by Vince and see if Vince is interested. Uh, I'll get back with you, Fonzie, uh, either way. And let me just run it by Vince. And uh, But thank you so much for calling. And, and I'm sure I'm going to run it by Vince and uh, we'll see what happens. So we hung up the phone after a 20-minute conversation, and I went back to the Giants and said, well, I called J.J., and he said he's going to talk to Vince. So, you know, it's not 100%. Nothing's 100% in this business. You know that, uh, David Penzer. So he said he's going to get back with us. So hopefully he does. But let's think about what our options are, Giant. So 20 minutes go by. The phone rings. It's J.J. Dillon. He said, hey, Vince loves the idea. He wants to meet you guys. When can you come up? I said, well, we're on hiatus now. He's got a bone spur operation, and we're at my parents' house in Odessa. When would you like us to come up? And he said, how about tomorrow? I said, well, tomorrow. Uh, they want us to come up tomorrow. He said, okay. I said, JJ, he's got to go first class because he's so big. He doesn't fit in coach. Me, I, I'll come coach. And he says, okay, let me put you out with Priscilla. She's going to make all your arrangements. Don't worry, Fonzie. We're going to put you right next to the sign in first class, too. So we jump on the plane the next day. There's a guy with a sign that says John Gonzalez and Bill Alfonso. And we get off the plane, and we're walking to the limousine. And there's Spike Lee. You know who he is, the little yeah. black guy, the producer, yeah. big-time Spike Lee. He, and you know he's a big basketball nut, right? right. You see him at all the fucking uh, ball games in Madison Square and shit. So we're walking to the limo, uh, and Spike Lee stops in his tracks and can't believe what he's seeing because the giant wasn't a great worker like 
uh, Lex Luger, but he was attractive. He was so tall and so big. He would, people would just, uh, their jaw would drop when he, when he turned the corner, you know what I mean? Yeah, he was huge. Wow, look at this guy. He was, he was huge. So, like, he says, oh my God, who is that guy? No, we're pro wrestlers and this and that. And then Spike gave me his card and said, please call me, please call me. But we can't call him because we're under contract with WCW and hopefully with Vince. So they got to go to the office to get him. Just like we were in Las Vegas and they were uh, doing the movie Honey, I Strong to Kids. And the producer and John Gonzalez were in Vegas, and and the producer scene, John Gonzalez says, "Oh my God, I want to put you in the scene right now." And he says, "Sorry, you got to call the office." And it was too late because they had to shoot the scene; it was already set up. But they were going to do a cameo appearance, but we couldn't do it because we were under contract. They had to get it okay. So anyway, we go to the limo, and the limo driver says, "We're not going to." Uh, the WWF headquarters, uh, Titan Towers, were going to Vince's house. Vince wants to meet you guys at his house. So I said, okay, oh, that's cool. great. So, yeah, very cool. That's not ordinary. So we drive to Vince's house. He lives in uh, Connecticut. You know, it's a 20, uh, an hour driver, whatever it is. We pull up, and there's this huge, big, beautiful, multi-million dollar home. And uh, the limo driver walks to the front door, they knock on the door, opens the door, and there's the servant. Vince's got about four butlers and maids and drivers and shit. So they open up the door, JJ sitting on the couch was doing some paperwork and says, Hey, Fonzie. Uh, he puts me over, talks to me for a few minutes, and then introduce, I introduced him to the giant. It's the first time they met. And he says, uh, Oh, nice to meet you guys. Fonzie, you look great. And, uh, Vince is running a few minutes late. He'll be here in a few minutes. And then Vince walks in. Vince walks in with his suit. He's real preppy and uh, real full of energy. And uh, uh, walks in. Vince McMahon, you must be Bill Alfonso. I've seen you before. You're quite athletic. You're a hell of a referee. Uh, giant, how you doing? Man, you're a big giant. How big are you? Well, I'm almost eight foot. Oh, my God. Giant Gonzalez. So... Uh, they talk and they talk. We tell them the whole scenario about Jim Hurd, the pay cut, this and that. And now the WCW owes Jack Gonzalez $60,000 in back pay because we haven't got paid yet. He's making, you know, every two months. I mean, we got paid there bi-weekly. So I guess he was making thirty grand a week or whatever. So anyway, we didn't get the check yet because we're on hiatus and we haven't got paid. So anyway, Vince says, they owe you 60000 He says, Giant, don't worry about the 60000 I don't even want you to go back there. Your contract's almost up, right? When is it up? He says, well, December 1st or whatever. He says, I'm going to give you a $60,000 bonus, signing bonus, and you're going to make way more money than you were guaranteed in WCW. And uh, he says, JJ, uh, go write a check for the Giant for $60,000 signing bonus. So he gave him his check, and Jack Gonzalez said to Vince, he says, Vince, I haven't been home for Christmas in two years. Uh, is there any way I can start in January? And he says, of course, you can start whenever you want. Giant, it's going to take me a couple of years to get you over anyway. Don't worry. He says, Fonzie, you want to start when he starts? I said, no, sir. I'd like to start as soon as possible. You know, referee. He says, okay, JJ, put him, put him to work. 
Uh, so JJ added me to the, they had a, a booking sheet for the month. Every first of the month, all the referees and uh, wrestlers would get a booking sheet that was 10 pages long with all the towns on it. You look where you're at because they were running two towns a night and, and double shots on weekends. So JJ says, I'm going to put you here, Fonzie. I'm going to put you here. I'm going to put you here. And it said MSG. I said, JJ, I don't know where. What's MSG? He said, Fonzie. That's Madison Square Garden, brother. I said, I didn't know that. I've never, you know, I'm WCW in the Florida kid. We've never been up north, you know. So they put me to work right away. John Gonzalez got a 60 grand check, went to Argentina. Then he came back, and then, then we stayed there for a while. And then Giant uh, Gonzalez finally fizzed out and uh, wanted to quit because he had enough, and he saved every penny for the three years he wrestled, too. And, and uh, WCW in the year and, and WWF saved all his money, had a lot of money saved, and it was like triple money in Argentina. Sure. He had 100000 in Argentina. It was like having a million. So he went and bought a property and a bunch of cows and was sick because he knew he was going to die because giants don't live long. He said, I'm Fonzie, I'm going to go home now because I know I'm going to die in the next five, ten years because we don't live long. And uh, I said, it's sad to hear, you know, but it's true. So he went home and, and I stayed and kept refereeing. And finally, um, it hit a uh, time in WWF where business goes up and goes down, you know, it peaks, they do sellouts all over the country. And then the economical, the, the country was doing a little bad and the houses weren't selling out. So he said, Fonzie, uh, they said, Fonzie, we're going to have to let you go right now. But in the future, when the business picks back up, we're going to hire you back. Okay. I said, uh, okay, but I'm going to give you a severance pay. Don't worry. I'm going to give you 10 grand and you finish up in a couple of months and I'll uh, give you, you know, you pay plus a $10,000 uh, departure bonus. And we're going to use you when we come to Florida and we're going to keep you in mind if it picks back up. I said, okay, thank you so much. What can I say? Are you events? No. I said, thank you. Yeah. So I'm happy that I'm off because I got a fucking bank load of money. I've been working like four years with WCW and Vince, you know, so I'm making pretty good money. So I got money in the bank. I'm happy as fuck. I got my first time off in like 20 years, David Penzer, right. you know, so I'm off. I'm at my parents' property. I got a little house in Tampa, but I'm out at my parents' property, in Odessa, five acres on a lake. I'm driving a tractor around and we got 40 orange trees. Uh, 10 oak trees, avocado, what a lot. I said, oh, my God, I leave my mom's property for like three months, four months without leaving. If I wanted any pot, my friend would bring it to me. If I wanted <laughs> something, food, they would bring it to me. You know? That was that was uh, before Uber Eats. You're, so you basically invented the concept yes. of Uber Eats. I had my friends bring me my shit. And, and uh, so I'm on the tractor, and my mom answers the phone. She says, Billy, I can barely hear her because I'm on a tractor having, driving it around. We got to go funky and shit and uh, fishing every day, having a ball, enjoying my life. I said, Damn, I'm fucking tired of the road, man. Working for Vincent and uh, WCW is brutal, brother, because no time off. None. Year round. You know that, David Penzer. Yeah. So uh, the phone rings. It's Paul Heyman. Now, I had helped Paulie get his job 
get started, he came down to Tampa with a wrestler named Tombstone. Right. In the 80s, who had a good body and came down here and wrestled for about six months. And uh, he was from uh, Baltimore. But Paul Heyman came down with Tombstone like I went to Texas with the Cuban. Right. Right. So he said, hey, I'm going to be with the Tombstone for the time he's here. I'm going to be traveling with him. I didn't know his father's a lawyer. He lived in Scarsdale. They're fucking millionaires. Yeah. Jim Paulie had a pair of Converse on, a, a pair of jeans with clothes and a T-shirt on all the time. So finally, Tombstone gets his notice, and he says, okay, Tombstone, you finish up on January 1st. And Paul Heyman says, hey, do you think I can, uh, I'm, I'm Bob Roop's assistant manager, assistant booker at the time. So Paulie comes up to me and says, Fonzie, you think I can go to the ring with Tombstone because he's finishing up in two weeks and I want to be his manager? And I said, uh, well, you can't go like you're dressed now. You, you think you can get a suit, you know, or something nice? And where he says, oh, yeah, I get it. What, what, what do you want me to wear? I said, we'll get a nice suit and... And he says, how about a cell phone or some type of phone? It was a cordless phone, not a cell phone at the time. Yeah. So he comes out with, with uh, Tombstone, and he's his manager. We let him manage, and he's wrestling Scott Hall. And Scott Hall press slams Paulie for the whole two weeks. Every night, press slams him. And, you know, and then he leaves. And then the next thing I know, he's Paul Heyman's a big superstar for... Uh, Vern Gagne, and then goes to WCW, and I work with him in WCW. And he says, Fonzie, I never forget you. You let me go out with Tombstone and stuff. So anyway, I never knew that story. That's later, a, that's awesome. That's a cool story. So so years later, I get the phone call. You just heard how I left WWF. Yeah. So I'm enjoying my life as a non-working guy for a few months, and I get a phone call. It's Paul Heyman. I said, Paul Heyman, I haven't talked to you. How you doing? Everything. So, uh, we talked for 20 minutes. He says, Fonzie, I got this idea. Uh, I got this company. It's called ECW. I said, ECW? What the fuck's an ECW? He said, well, it was a little company we got in Philly. We're trying to get started. And I got this perfect little angle. I want to work with you. And uh, can you fly up uh, next Friday and do this little angle thing? You come in for a couple of weeks, and I'll pay you good. And then, you know, we're using it, and then you thank you. I said, okay, Paul, I'd love to do that for you because I'm not committed to nobody, no contact, no nothing. So I'm a free agent. So I fly up. I, I dress with a fucking beautiful suit. I got Louis Vuitton luggage. I got a fucking Samariner Rolex on. I walk into the dressing room, and there's uh, Sandman and uh, Tommy Dreamer and guys I've never seen before. And the Taz and Samuel, all these guys, I don't know who the fuck these guys are. And they don't know really who I am that much, you know? Right. So they were, uh, but Paul Heyman knew I was brilliant at what I did. So he says, okay, Fonzie, we're going to do this and we're going to work up. And this guy's our big uh, guy. His name is 911. He took Sam's people. We're going to work at where you are a traditional anti-violence fan, uh, fan-friendly uh, non-violent, no blood, sports entertainment, WWF. And WWF, the ECW fans hated. Yeah, they, they hated. You know, they were hardcore. So I came in, and like I, the first thing I did was something with uh, uh, Shane Douglas brought me in and did an angle where I took the belt from somebody or did some angle, and I got 
instant heat because I wore a bow tie, blue shirt, and they, the fans knew who I was, but they really didn't know who I was, but I acted like a, a special referee, non-violent, stopped the violence, and I had so much heat the first couple of weeks, and the second uh, thing they did with me was uh, I was going to referee a Taipei death match between the two guys that... Uh, uh, fuck, uh, one's passed away recently, uh, the two blonde guys. Anyway, Taipei Deathmatch, where they dip their hands, they take their hands up, uh, dip it in glue, and dip it in broken glass, and have a match. So, they've been waiting Lovely. for months for this match. Months, months, months they've been building this match up. So, I'm the special referee. So, one guy gets a little bit of color. I mean, a little bit of juice on his head. And I stopped the match, like, <laughs> two minutes into the match. Oh, the that's people, heat. They, I had to have police escort. Oh, I don't doubt building, it. Brother, swear to God. So, Paul Heyman says, Fonzie, uh, I changed my mind. You're going to stay here for a while. Are you okay with us? Yeah, I love it. I'm fucking getting over. I've never been on the mic too much, you know what I mean? Then, finally, they turned me manager. And I was with Taz, and then Sabu and Van Damme had a five-year run there. Hell of a run, and that's what you're actually most known for, obviously. And uh, and but I, you know, I remember you from uh, from Championship Wrestling from Florida, and I love to talk about the territories. Hey, I got. Well, I'm going to let you go in just a second. You've been more than generous with your time. Uh, oh, it's my pleasure. We're going to do Dave Penzer. Let's do part two because we've only scratched. Surface. <laughs> if you get if you get a good response from our podcast, have me on in, the, in, a, in another month or whenever you have a blank space and you need it to fill. If you get a good response, I'll be more than happy to tell some more stories. I got a ton of them for you. I'd love to. I'd love to get you back real quickly before okay. before we wrap it up. Um, okay, I didn't even you. I didn't even remember this, but I was talking to a friend of mine. Told I told him I was gonna a, a fan. I. Uh, told him I was going to uh, interview you. And he mentioned that you had a, at one point you left ECW and had a cup of coffee with WCW, but then went right back to ECW. And, and I was there in WCW and I don't remember this. Is that true? And if so, how did that all go down? And what, what was, uh, why was it such a short stay? You mean when, when, when uh, WCW and WWF were plucking talent out of ECW yes. and uh, going to sign contracts like Taz with, Mike Awesome win, uh, Sandman win. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about hardcore, like that. hardcore okay. hat. So I, I, I didn't know this, but Kevin Sullivan was had the book in um, WCW, and he was they were still in talent, and Paulie was mad, and Paulie and Sabu had a love hate relationship. Paulie, and um, you still with me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just heard a little sound. Um, Paulie and Sabu had a love-hate relationship because of some difference of opinions and stuff. So um, I didn't know that they were talking to Sabu. Kevin Sullivan and WCW were talking to Sabu. They wanted to steal them like they did Mike Awesome, Sandman, and all of the other talent. Right. So he was flying to Atlanta back and forth, not telling me yet. And then Kevin said to Sabu, hey, who do you want to manage? Uh, Fonzie, of course. So I was going to go to WCW, not really knowing that they were talking about me. My first check would have been 250 The next year would have been 350 and then 4 because they were paying big, big yeah. money. 
Scott yes, Hall were. was making a million dollars a year or yes, fifty or whatever it was. So I didn't know this. So finally it got out that they were negotiating with Sabu and uh Paulie called WCW and threatened him with a big civil fucking lawsuit and shit and said, Hey, you can't steal my guy and and, and then so they called Sabu and said, Hey, look, we can't we're not gonna go through all this with Paul Heyman because his dad's a lawyer and uh, he'll take us a court for two years, so we're just gonna not let you come. You know what I mean? We're gonna right. ixnay you coming. So fucking that's the only time I ever got mad at Paul Heyman. I didn't even know what was happening, but they thought I knew the whole time. They thought I was in on the negotiations, but I wasn't. Sabu was going not behind my back, but he wasn't telling me he was going to surprise me. He said, hey, Fonzie, guess what? I got you booked with me as my manager at WCW again, uh, making big money. So when I found out that I got squashed and and uh, lost my opportunity to go make a fucking almost, you know, a half million dollars in three years or whatever, I was so fucking mad, but what could I do? So I sucked it up and kept working. That's when I had... But they were going to fire me. They thought I was in on it. And Paul Heyman was going to fire me, so he had me uh, work a match with Beulah, uh, the girl, Tommy Dreamer's wife. And the match was so fucking good for some reason. You know, and I got big juice by accident. I didn't mean to. I hit an artery. I was bled to death. Then they rushed me to the hospital, and I got like 30 stitches inside. I severed arteries. I was bled to death. It was of Paul Heyman's favorite matches, if you ask him, has been on about seven different DVDs, of Blood Sports, all kind of different DVDs that Vince puts out. Uh, uh, but the match was so good, but you had to be there and be a fan of ECW to appreciate it. Now, if you watch the match now, you say, oh, wow, that was interesting, a good match, good blood, and the, but you had to be a part of that era to really feel the vibe of the match, you know, and the uh, people wanted them Beulah, to kill me, which she literally almost did, but yeah. she called me every day. I'm so sorry. It wasn't her fault that I got heavy juice by accident. You know what I mean? I just hit the wrong fucking part of my head and almost killed myself. But, um, so with that being said, that saved me from getting fired. Uh, cause Paulie was going to let me go. And then the word was, you know, that I was part of the negotiations, but I wasn't. I, I, I wasn't. But since that match got over so good and it was so good, Paulie didn't have the uh, nerve to fire me. He said, you know, and never approached me and said, I was getting ready to fire you, and now you're going to keep your job because you had a good match. He never said that. It was just unspoken, you know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Well, but I found out later from Todd Gordon that you know I was getting fired after the match, but it was so good that they kept me. They they, they didn't have the uh, nerve to fire me after that. We tore the house down. Well, I I appreciate your time, and uh, yeah, we haven't even. I'm sure you have a ton of ECW stories that uh, that that would oh, sh- yes, that I would do, that would shock the the world. I, I know. I talked to Brian Blair last week, and he wanted to come back and tell some stories. So maybe sometime we could get you and Brian on at the same time, and you could tell stories that maybe that you both know and diff- uh, different stories, and we could just. I think you should keep us. I think uh, it'd be great to have me and Brian Blair together because we just spent. Uh, we did a fundraiser for 
Jerry Gray, who you know, he's got cancer. Yeah, God bless him. And we did a fundraiser in Orlando. And me and Brian Blair rode together to Orlando. And we were telling stories back and forth. And it seemed like he said, Fonzie, this is the shortest ride I've ever went to Orlando. I mean, it was over like 10 minutes to see because we were telling the stories about each other, you know, different stories. And we had the best fucking time. So we get along real good. We got some great stories. Yes, of course, I would love to be a part of uh, uh, something with you in the future. All Thank right. you so much. For no, no. If, uh, if anybody wants to bring you in to manage or, or sign autographs at a convention, is there a social media? Are you on social media at all? Any way to hook? hook, uh, hook? Uh, I got an I got an email, or they can call you. They can call your podcast and request. You know, so that's how we're gonna know if they if uh, you get a good feedback of our stories. Say, you know, just get a hold of you now. Uh, but you know, BillAlfonso dot real at iCloud dot com. You can get a hold of me anytime there. Uh, uh, I'm not hard to find and, uh, I'm fan friendly and I love doing conventions, uh, and I'm available. So, and I'm not a big high dollar budget, like, uh, like, uh, sting or somebody where you're going to give me 10 grand and come do an hour, you know, I'm fan friendly and I'm, uh, economical to bring in. All right, ladies and gentlemen, better known as Fonzie, Bill Alfonso. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you at uh, CWF Fan Fest 3 in uh, Lutz, Florida with uh, Buddy Colt, Dory Funk Jr., Bob Roop, Steve Kern. You and Bob could figure out how they've, uh, they've pegged you as, uh, as, as, as uh, brothers or stepbrothers on, exactly. on social media. But uh, uh, anybody want more information about that, they go to eventbrite.com. Just put in CWF Fan Fest. It pops right up. And uh, thanks so much again. Uh, good catching up with you uh, a couple of weeks ago. And great. Uh, uh, really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure the fans are going to love the stories. And we'll try to get you and Brian on together to do a special story time only with Brian Blair and, and Fonzie uh, for City Ringside. But thank you for your time, Bill. And uh, we'll be back in touch. David Penzer, thank you so much. And thank you to your executive producers. I know it's not easy to put on these podcasts. And- I appreciate you uh, uh, keeping the tradition going, talking about Florida wrestling and keeping wrestling alive like you guys do. You're a great guy. It is my pleasure to be a friend of yours, and thank you so much for having me on the show. And I am looking forward to the second coming up uh, shortly. Can't wait to see you guys and have a great relationship with the fans. Sign an autograph, take pictures. I'll have a ball. I want to appreciate Bill Alfonso's time. It definitely went above and beyond. Let us know what you think about that interview, a little bit of uh, behind the spotlight type stuff as far as the territories go and the life of a referee and uh, and, and also hitting on more modern WCW, uh, WWE, and ECW stuff. Uh, we hope if you enjoyed that, maybe we could get him back. Uh, like I said, maybe him and Brian Blair, uh, maybe we could... Uh, so uh, they both live in this area where I live, so maybe we could uh, beat them and sit face-to-face and have some good old-fashioned storytelling like uh, we used to do after the matches at the bars or riding down the road 300 miles. But um, we hope you enjoyed that. Uh, you could hit us up at, at David Penzer on Twitter or at Penzer Ringside as the site of our podcast. You could email me at any time at David Penzer, all one word, at RadioInfluence.com. So a little something different this week, a little behind the scenes, territorial days and up until ECW. 
Uh, always like trying something different, and uh, we hope you enjoyed that ride through memory lane from 1978 all the way up to currently as well. So we thank Bill Alfonso. Uh, coming up in the next several weeks, uh, we're going to talk to Allie, who is a TNA knockout, as most of you know, and um, has most recently come out very publicly about her struggles of living in the wrestling business with anxiety. Uh, I don't haven't talked about it a lot, but I don't mind talking about the fact that I've lived the last 35 years of my life, uh, 30 of it in and around the wrestling business with on and off anxiety. So I think it'll be a different, that'll be a different kind of show for sure. I think one that a lot of people can relate to. We'll talk about how she got involved in wrestling and uh, some of the impact wrestling behind the scenes going on, but we'll also talk about her personal story and maybe weave my personal story in as well. And then, one half of Harlem Heat about to be inducted uh, Cauliflower Alley Club, as Brian Blair told you last week. Stevie Ray, uh, interesting story of Stevie Ray and Booker T, uh, how they got involved in professional wrestling, made their way to WCW, and uh, how their lives took two totally different turns towards the end of WCW and beyond. So uh, always striving to bring you uh, interesting guests, guests that don't do a lot of podcasts. and. Uh, like I said, we're working as we get closer to the Legends of Wrestling in Augusta on March 24th and in Detroit on April 21st, working to get you some of the bigger names in the business as well, the Stings, the uh, Million Dollar Mans, and uh, the Ricky Steamboat. So uh, I'm even really hoping, and I'd say the chances of this are 50-50, but I'm really hoping to have a conversation on this podcast with Eric Bischoff. I think it would be fascinating, personally. Uh, go back 20 years and be able to talk to a, a low-level guy like me, able to go back and reminisce about our different visions of what was going on at the same time with the boss, the guy running the whole thing, and the low-level ring announcer. I think that would be fascinating. I would love to see if Eric would give us a little bit of his time to make that happen. As always, thanks for downloading. And uh, until next time, I'm David Penzer. I'm still City Ringside. You guys have a good one. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry football with Chris Landry. Quick fix on Radio Influence. If you draft well, you develop well you have continuity, then the only thing you're doing in free agency is trying to augment that at the right spot. We're going to find a bargain. We're going to find this end piece for our, you know, kitchen, and this is what we're going to do. We're not going to break the bank. We're not going to be foolish. We want a certain type of guy to fit a certain type of role. We like them uh, coming out of the draft. We like what we know about him. We think he's a good fit here. Let's go ahead and make that move. You start stepping out and getting into a price war, all of a sudden, boom, it's over. You're chasing the market, and you're now completely disrespected the balance of your salary within your roster, and it's going to hurt you. Listen, free agency is like a garage sale. You're chasing what other people want to put out the curb. 
Chris Landry brings you Landry Football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.